walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow This is the Camino Podcast, episode 27. I'm Dave Whitson. Welcome back. What would you change about Santiago de Compostela? I'm not talking about the buildings or any of the infrastructure, but the process of arrival. Imagine or recall that moment as you descend down from Monte de Gozo, you cross over the highway along the bridge, you work your way gradually towards the old town, wait at that intersection for a while, stoplight always seems to take forever, and then cross into the old town, the big stone buildings, the stone walkway, eventually wrapping your way around the cathedral, going down the covered stairway into the Prado do Obradoro, and then all of the pilgrimage traditions that go from there, going into the cathedral, hugging the saint, visiting the relics, working your way over to the pilgrim office, receiving your Compostela certificate. What's missing? For Johnny Walker, part of what was missing was a real welcome for English-speaking pilgrims. And so after he completed his first pilgrimage and he felt a connection to Santiago de Compostela, he decided to come back and make an impact. And in this episode, I speak with Johnny. It's not his real name, by the way. You'll find out about the origins. But I speak with Johnny about his process of initiating some significant changes to the pilgrim experience in Santiago and how he went about it and the reasons that he did so. That's the first guest today. The second happens to be our first, second-time guest on the podcast, Brian Bouldry coming back. You might recall Brian. He was on the podcast previously, shortly before the American Pilgrims on the Camino's annual gathering, where he was the keynote speaker. He returns now as he has a new book coming out, Inspired Journeys, an anthology of stories focused on secular pilgrimages. So we have a conversation about the idea of secular pilgrimage and some of the different narratives in his book that speak to that experience. So a couple different angles today, but also a couple of really engaging guests with great perspectives to share. Thanks for tuning in as always. It's great to have you here, and I hope you enjoy. Johnny Walker lives in Santiago de Compostela, is the author and editor of multiple Confraternity of St. James guidebooks on the Caminos de Santiago, and has helped set up the Camino Chaplaincy. Given his recent publication of guidebooks on the Camino Portugues and Frances, I started our conversation by asking him how he got started with that. This all started in, I think, 2008. I walked my first Camino in 2006. Yep. Although I had, I mean, I had spent many years in the Scottish Hills as a boy, um, but then walking, all that kind of mountaineering stuff was out of my life for a long time. Anyway, I walked from Seville to Santiago in 2006, mm-hmm. and I wondered how I could possibly explain this experience to other people. Because it was just, I, I found it quite overwhelming, actually, on a whole number of levels. 
anyway, um, I decided that the way to do this would be you have to show people pictures mm -hmm. of how beautiful it is. You have to find a way of describing some of the experiences. And it also occurred to me that there were plenty of better writers than me. So quotations from, from scripture or from a novelist or whatever combined might might go some way to explain the experience. So the idea for the first publication came into my mind and it was the 25th anniversary of the Confraternity of St. James in London and by a sheer coincidence a publisher said to me, we'll publish the, the book and I published the first Spiritual Companion hmm. in 2008 and then I walked to the Camino Inglés and there were no yellow arrows. They had all faded. There was no guidebook. And so I wrote the first guidebook. Um, and that's that's how the whole thing started. I invented the name Johnny Walker mm -hmm. because my idea was that anybody could be Johnny Walker. And hmm. that these were, should be guidebooks written by pilgrims for other pilgrims. And that anybody could write a guidebook. And anybody could be Johnny Walker. But the name stuck must be something <laughs> to do with must be something to do with drinking whiskey as yeah. well as writing guidebooks so that's 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 how that came about how did you arrive at the point where you are now where as a british man you are living in santiago and devoting so much of your energy to the camino clearly the the starting point is in that in that first story but there's some more steps between there and here well I had decided to, I, I had been doing quite difficult jobs for a long time, for about 15 or 20 years. I had always worked, worked in the non-governmental sector with NGOs. My best job ever was in the 90s when, when the National Lottery was introduced in the United Kingdom and there was no organisation to give away the money uh, to charitable organisations and I got the job as the director of this new organisation giving away tens of millions of pounds to charities in the United Kingdom. But I found these jobs quite difficult. And my, my last job was setting up an organization called the, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs. Hmm. Um, and I said to them I would work with them for one or two years to get them started. And I ended up staying four years. And I really, really wanted a change of lifestyle. Hmm. Um, I hadn't expected the Camino to Santiago to mark that, but when I found out about it, it became my bridge to a new way of life. And when I arrived in Santiago, um, you see, I, had, I thought that I was going to, when I stopped working, I would be living in the south of Spain, where I'd been going for some, some years, playing mm -hmm. the organ in a church there. People know me. I've got friends in Seville, and I thought that was to be the place. However, I walked to Santiago, and actually, the moment that I sat in the cathedral, I thought, this is the place for me. Hmm. And so it came to pass. Wow. I ended up resigning um, from, the, from the big job. I mean, I did some other things just to keep me going. And I, and I started volunteering in the pilgrim's office. Mm -hmm. I recognized that there wasn't a word of English spoken for English-speaking pilgrims in the cathedral, although people in the pilgrim's office tried their best. One day, one of the lads in the pilgrim's office said to me, you're coming out here. By that point, Dave, I was coming out to Santiago maybe one week every month, mm -hmm. or I would be working for a week at a, little, at a job I had, and then coming to Santiago for two or three weeks. And my friend, who's become my best friend in Santiago, Danny, said to me, you're coming here so often, you're, you're paying for a hostel, 
in my family, we have an apartment that we don't use. Hmm. You're very welcome to, to use that. This is another strange story. So I arranged to meet him at the apartment, not not knowing what this was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And we met two minutes from the cathedral in this nondescript building. And we went up in the lift. At least there was a lift, I thought. And he opened the door. And here was this beautiful three-bedroom, two-bathroom, wooden floor <laughs> apartment, fully furnished. <laughs> and it was like the Marie Celeste. And what had happened was his partner's grandmother owned the apartment. She died, left the apartment to his partner's mother, who fully refurbished it. But before she lived in it for any length of time, she died. Oh, my gosh. A packet of her cigarettes were still sitting on the table. <laughs> Literally, it was like the Marie Celeste. And I lived there very happily for four years before I, I, I moved to my current house. So it seemed that everything was, all of the arrows were pointing in the direction of me living in Santiago. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to do that. And as part of your work, you're involved with the Camino Chaplaincy, right? Well, yes, I suppose <laughs> my last job in the, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs points to what I've been about mostly in my life of setting up projects which are sustainable and will last. My first organization's just passed its 40th birthday hmm. and is still going strong. So um, it became apparent to me that in the Pilgrim's office, when I went there, there were 22 members of staff all on salaries, and they weren't really pilgrims. Some of them had walked the Camino, but I thought, what a great opportunity for pilgrims to become volunteers here in the pilgrim's office and welcome other pilgrims. So we set up the Amigos Welcome Service, mm-hmm. which has subsequently become a permanent volunteer. At that point, it was paid for. We provided an apartment for the volunteers. It was paid for collectively by the English-speaking pilgrim associations in the various countries. Hmm. It's now a permanent program funded by the Cathedral of Santiago, and I'm very pleased about that. And it also became apparent to me that there were no services in English for English-speaking pilgrims arriving at the cathedral. So I think four years ago now, I asked a couple of friends of mine who are priests to come and say Mass for a few weeks during their holidays in English, and it was a huge success. Hmm. So the following year, I wondered where I would get priests from because the dean of the cathedral and the archbishop said, this is great, Um, you can keep this going if you wish, but there's no money. So you can do it, but you need to do it. So I thought, where am I going to get Catholic priests from? Um, So (laughs) slightly slightly tongue-in-cheek, I placed an advertisement in a religious newspaper in the United Kingdom. And if anybody knows Catholic priests, you'll know that I was, I didn't know what the reaction would be because the advertisement said, Camino to Santiago. If you're a Catholic priest and you've walked the Camino to Santiago and you're prepared to pay for your own flight and all your own expenses, <laughs> we, will, we will give you an apartment in Santiago and the privilege of ministering to English-speaking pilgrims. <laughs> 23 priests applied. Wow. 23 priests applied. We selected 17. They came for various um, amounts of time, and we provided mass in English for 186 days continuously in that first year. One of the priests, a guy called Father Joe Coughlin, said, this is absolutely wonderful. I love it. I'm on the brink of retirement. And he went back to Ireland and retired and came back for all of the season last year. Wow. 
And then, lo and behold, another priest popped up who had spent some time with us. And he said, I love this work. Um, I've been a pilgrim. I've walked from Le Puy en Valais to Santiago. And he has now been appointed director of the Camino Chaplaincy. He will start as the permanent director next April, living permanently in Santiago. Hmm. And the chaplaincy, hopefully, is now a permanent feature of life here in Santiago. And I'm delighted about that. So there are some really clear and specific ways that you have fundamentally reshaped the English pilgrims' experience of arrival in Santiago. Well, I hope so. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that, was the well, that was the intention. So, But who knows? I mean, it's up to people to keep these things going. Mm -hmm. um, and the chaplaincy next year, I mean, we, well, I mean, we, we tried placing priests out on the Camino. This seemed like a good idea at the time placing priests out in the community to open churches which were previously clo closed and provide a ministry to pilgrims. It's, it's shown itself to be really quite difficult mm. um, to, to maintain and sustain and to support people. And for English-speaking priests going into a Spanish-speaking community and working there. So it, it hasn't been without its wrinkles, Dave. Mm -hmm. Next year, what we've decided to do is we're experimenting with spiritual retreats walking the Camino to Santiago. So walking retreats. Usually mm. a retreat would be people would go to a retreat center and maybe be silent or, you know, and say prayers and all that stuff. Um, what we're doing is we're having groups of people walking with a priest from Febrero in June and from Barcelos in the Camino Portuguese in October, mm. where they will have morning prayer, they will have meditation, they will chat with each other and chat, meet other pilgrims on the way as they walk the, the various stages of the Camino. And they'll have mass together in the evening and a communal meal to which they will invite other people I'm sure that they've met mm. along the way. And it's a different kind of spiritual retreat. We advertised these 10 days ago and the second retreat uh, from Barthelos is already full. <laughs> um, and, and there's a waiting list. So it shows, I think there's a great demand I think pilgrims are spiritually thirsty. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of pilgrims are apprehensive about walking on their own, would join a group doing this. So, well, that's just one other little, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One other little enterprise that's, that seems to be taking off. And, and the new director of the chaplaincy will take all of that forward. And I'll think up, I'll think up other things to do. <laughs> I imagine that you have a perspective on the Camino that's really different from most of us pilgrims out here, you know, the regular pilgrims have a lot of issues that occupy our attention, bedbugs, pilgrim crowding, all that sort of stuff. But you're living in Santiago, you're working with people whose, to some extent, their professional lives are associated with the pilgrimage. So I'm wondering, like, what are the issues that are percolating about the pilgrimage in those circles, what are the, the issues that seem to be top of mind for church officials and, and others closely associated with the pilgrimage in Santiago? Well, I mean, I don't know how much I'm, and I think people do associate me with the establishment here, but I'm much more <laughs> of a maverick. I'm much more of a maverick character than that. You can get and, more done that way. <laughs> well, but I'm also happier when I'm on Camino, and I'm very fortunate to live here and have the time and the resources to be. This year, I've walked from Florence to Assisi mm -hmm. to Rome. I walked the Camino Portuguese to write the guidebook to that, the Camino Portuguese coastal 
variant. I've mm-hmm. walked the Camino Inglés twice, and on Friday I'm off to Cordoba to walk to Cáceres. <laughs> so um, all of that helps me recover from dealing with the more institutional aspects of the Camino here in Santiago. You can decode that yourself if you wish. <laughs> I know that reading Rebecca's blog and talking with her, that, that there are some issues that pop up periodically from her group of, of as she dubs it, Camino busybodies. Like, is there serious talk in Santiago about the idea of moving away from the 100-kilometer rule, or is that is that just sort of a pipe dream that people on the outside looking in kick around? I'm sure it's I'm sure it's an issue only amongst Camino activists. Hmm. I don't think it's on the agenda at all of the Junta de Galicia or of the Cathedral of Santiago. Hmm. I'm interested in your experience with the Camino Inglés. That's the first route that I associated you with as a oh. as a guidebook author. You've been a great advocate for the route. What's the allure of that pilgrimage to you? In the beginning, it was because it was like the poor child of the Caminos. In <laughs> um, the first time I walked it, only 1,200 people in that year walked the Camino Inglés. Mm. And we guidebook writers, Dave, you're one yourself, mm-hmm. we have an effect on routes because this year, I think, over 12,000 people will walk the Camino Inglés. Mm. And that's, since two th- that's in eight years we've yeah. seen that uh, exponential growth. Um, the authorities have opened up two new albergues, and all of that really adds to a route being popular amongst pilgrims. I think it's beautiful. At that time, I thought it was very, very underwalked and very unknown by pilgrims, and, and yet a really, really historic route. Mm. Unfortunately, the most the most historic branch of the Camino Inglés from Coruña to Santiago is 76 kilometres. So people walking that don't qualify for a Compostela, unfortunately. And I think that's um, a very good example of how artificial and contrived the 100 kilometre rule is. Mm-hmm. It was made in... It was just made up by the canon in charge of the Pilgrim's Office, Don Jaime, um, at that time, and therefore it could be changed in the blink of an eye. My own personal view is that there should be no qualification that anyone who arrives in Santiago and has journeyed to Santiago with a sense of pilgrimage, i.e. with spiritual motivations, searching and visits the tomb of St. James, should qualify for the Compostela. Mm-hmm. But that's my own personal opinion. <laughs> what keeps you going back? You know, you've walked, as you just said, you've you've walked a number of pilgrimages, and you continue to go back. And it can't simply be a therapy for working with the institutions. So, what <laughs> what what is the the drive to keep walking on the Camino forums and on Facebook and so forth? You see people writing who are about to start their first pilgrimage talking about the sense of excitement, mm-hmm. which is a kind of excitement and fear mixed up. Um, and I still experience that when I set out. Mm-hmm. And I still sometimes, I mean, I think this route out of Cordoba on Friday has got a, a stiff elevation in the first etapa. I will still say to myself, as I did on my first Camino, why have you decided to do this? <laughs> And so I still have all of this, all of these same feelings, no matter how many kilometres I, I walk, and it still rewards me, Dave. Mm. 
I still get a feeling of really being empowered that I can still do this, hmm. um, that I'm free to do it. You know, and there's a kind of uh, <laughs> the answer to the answer to my lifelong neurosis is in the Camino. <laughs> it always occurs to me that if everything else in my life falls apart, if I wake up tomorrow morning and there's no money in my bank account, if I lose my house, if I lose the love of my children or whatever, I can survive hmm. simply with what's in my rucksack and walk through very beautiful countryside and meet some really genuinely nice people. Hmm. And that happens to me every time. Is there a moment for you that's sort of the, the defining moment for you as a pilgrim? You've walked through so many different places, not just Spain, Portugal, but you mentioned Italy. I know you've walked through Japan. D do you have sort of a quintessential pilgrim experience that, that sticks in your mind? So many, so many, um, really. You know, from being cold and hungry, and I went into this... <laughs> This was in the Via de la Plata in the middle of winter. Yeah. And I went into this little bar and the, the woman was so grumpy when I asked her if she'd if she had any food and she said, "No, we don't serve food." <laughs> and obviously she reflected on this and she said, "Well, actually I've, I've I've been preparing soup for the family. I suppose I could give you some of that." <laughs> and she produced this wonderful terrine of fish soup, my most favourite. <laughs> and I was so hungry and so cold. And by that time, by that time, it wasn't just the soup that was warm. She was warm and friendly and talking to me. And there have been almost countless mm -hmm. encounters like that of simple, simple exchange of human kindness, yeah. which is quintessentially the Camino, um, which keeps me going back. And which convinces me that this this profound spiritual experience is there for everybody. All you've got to do is set out. Hmm. I mean, I say that to people. All you have to do is find the first arrow and walk in the direction in which it's pointing, and everything will <laughs> it will just all it will just all emerge. Mm -hmm. What's it like? to live in Santiago. I know we talked about the work that you're doing, the kinds of projects you're taking on, but there's also the reality that it's Santiago. You are living in the destination. You are living in the place that so many people are walking towards and for whom arrival means great accomplishment, success, and also a, a, a bittersweet ending. There are, there's a lot of partying, there's a lot of liveliness in Santiago, and there's, of course, also a lot of spirituality, and it's your home. What is that like? Well, it's different from living in central London, <laughs> uh, which, is what, which is what I did uh, for some years. You know, I was back there last week with, uh, with a friend from Santiago, a priest friend from Santiago who had never been to London before, and he was just astonished at the crowds and being like sardines in the tube in the metro and so forth. I don't miss any of that. Hmm. The medieval city of Santiago is extremely beautiful. Um, I'm an organist. That's been the big obsession. That's an even bigger obsession uh, and longer standing obsession in my, in my life than, than, than walking the Camino. Um, and I play here in Santiago. And I love being here. It's significant, though, 
But although there are other expats or British expats or English-speaking expats around, I have none of them in my circle of friends hmm. here in Santiago. They're all Gallego people, and they have taken me to their heart, and, and I've taken them to my heart, and I'm delighted to be here. And I think I'll be in Santiago for a long time, probably not in the winters, <laughs> but it, it rains prodigiously. It rains even more than it rains in Scotland, believe it or not. <laughs> and I've taken to finding my way back to Seville and Malaga and the cities in the south of Spain in the winter times. Hmm. But I'm very privileged and very thankful to be able to live here. Yeah. And of course, it's the rental prices in London <laughs> that, that fund this entire enterprise. So let's hope that this uh, this very sad vote of Brexit for the UK leaving the European community will not affect that. Yeah. I'm actually hoping that it will not come to pass. Yeah. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. Last thought, what's next for you in your work? I know you said that a lot of the things that you've been working on are now in the hands of others. The Camino Chaplaincy is off and running now. Do you have a vision for the next project you want to take on in Santiago? Well, I've become more heavily involved in writing guidebooks mm -hmm. with the CSJ, and I've got one or two other guidebook projects in mind for the future. I do all of this on a voluntary basis. Thankfully, thank the Lord that I'm in a position to do that, but it also means that I'm free. It's mm. not like having a job where I have to do what other people tell me to do. If I see a need, then I'm very happy to explore whether I can do something that will meet that need. So I've got one or two other guidebook projects, one or two of the lesser walked routes that I want to explore. In terms of big projects here in Santiago, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, I love the CSJ guidebooks. It was the, the Guide to the Frances was the first guidebook I ever used to walk on the Camino de Santiago. And the, well, the, the, the 2017 edition has just arrived from the printers, <laughs> so you can get online and place your order right now. Awesome. www.csj.org.uk. Awesome. I recommend it. You know, there, there are a lot of beautiful guidebooks out there. And I, I mean, I'm a guidebook fan. You know, I, I, I try to buy most of them. But uh, the simplicity of the CSJ guide, the fact that you can just really like cram it into any part of your backpack, it gives you just the information you need, nothing extra. It's, it's yes. really handy. Well, I mean, and also I think as commercial guidebook writers, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's one of the great successes of the Camino Inglés that John Bradley has now written a guidebook to it, yeah. which must mean there are enough customers there to buy the guidebook. Oh, yeah. And I think, I, I, I mean, I'm a voluntary sector person, Dave, Dave. I think that's our role as volunteers is to be pioneers and break new ground and open up other paths. And I think commercial guidebook writers do a great job, but there's still a great deal of room for guidebooks written by pilgrims for other pilgrims mm -hmm. on a gratis basis, on a donative or volunteering basis. And hopefully that will continue. And I'm delighted that the CSG actually keeps up that tradition. Yeah, it's a great service and it's a credit to all of the people who contribute. And uh, of course, it's a credit to, to you as well right now because you are doing a lot of the heavy lifting for those guidebooks. So thank you, Johnny Walker, for all of your contributions to the Camino for, for so many of us pilgrims out there. The pleasure is entirely mine. Thank you.
Brian Baldry is in the English department at Northwestern University, teaches creative writing, and he has a new book coming out soon, Inspired Journeys, Travel Writers in Search of the Muse. And on top of that, probably more important to his CV, he is the first person to make a second appearance on this podcast. So that's pretty big, Brian. Welcome back. Thank you very much. (laughs) I I do feel that that is a great accomplishment. (laughs) Well, it's good to chat with you again. And uh, as I said, this is your second anthology of pilgrimage-related tales coming out, right? We had Traveling Souls before. We did, and that was more about uh, convent, uh, traditional pilgrimages like Santiago de Compostela, um, mm-hmm. but also Mecca and you know some of the Japanese uh, shrines and Rome and Jerusalem. Uh, this one is um, more personal. You know, people making pilgrimages to places that are very important to their to them alone. Hmm. There is one Santiago uh, essay which is more about the author's uh, the state of her knees than Santiago itself. So. <laughs> So what inspired the the shift to this different kind of pilgrimage writing? Well, it is, it's a you know as a, as a great lover of of the road to Santiago and you know kind of continuing to find you know my my personal pilgrimages have gone from taking those legs of the journey to Santiago that are as far out as Austria and um and and just finding that there is a kind of there's a kind of spirituality that comes from finding somebody who is far away, but there are ways to bring him closer. The, probably the, the big idea came from an essay by Alice Walker, the woman who wrote The Color Purple, most famously. Mm-hmm. She did an essay way back in the 70s called Looking for Zora, as in the author Zora Neale Hurston, who at the time was not very famous. Now is completely part of canon. You know, she's sure. taught and read. But Alice Walker went down to Florida to find the grave of Nora Zora Neale Hurston. And nobody knew where it was. Nobody knew who she was, a lot of people. There's a couple of people who did. She went to this graveyard that she described as, you know, since this is sort of Halloween time, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it was filled with high weeds and snakes. And she found the grave, just completely neglected, turned it into a kind of shrine. And now it is, if you just go online, you can find it as one of the most venerated places. It's a, a, another official sort of pilgrimage site for a lot of people who love that author. Mm-hmm. So that I kind of loved that essay, and I kind of thought that there were a lot of people who did that sort of thing. There are a lot of people who, you know, sort of unofficial saints is what they sort they are to me. Every essay in here is one of some kind of person that venerated, not in a religious way, but definitely there's the woman who goes to all the little house uh, houses from Laura Ingalls Wilder, mm-hmm. and, and there's a, a very <laughs> great guy named John Beckman who illegally climbs the walls of the castle of the Marquis de Sade and yeah. the cost, you know, there, there's some irreligious pilgrimages <laughs> in there as well. But they're funny. What what they lack in spirituality, they make up with fun. So. Yeah. What do you think is the allure of visiting the birth or death places of famous people? Because I had my own experience with this. When I traveled to Buenos Aires, I really wanted to see as many sites as I could that were associated with the the author Jorge Luis Borges. And so I was compelled to do it, but I didn't necessarily know what to do with myself when I got there. So it it felt good, but I don't know why. 
I, it's absolutely true. I mean, that's the problem. It's sort of, it's like, you know, whenever I meet my favorite, you know, authors that are living, you know, that I've, or, or artists or, or, uh, public figures that I admire. When I, if I finally get the opportunity to meet them, I reduce to just this kind of teenage, ch- you know, <laughs> I think they're super great, and that's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Fanboyism. Fan, yes, that's what, what you really become. You know, to, to be able to do this, maybe a way to connect this is to sort of say, what were the first pilgrims going to Santiago doing? I mean, I think one has to build a shrine or, or take... Did you take anything away? Did you take a little of stone or anything like that when you went to Borges' grave? Or I, I, I just took pictures. That's it. Yes, that's a thing, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's enough for us. That's good. I did the same. I did the same with my. The subject of my essay in this collection is considered the world's worst poet, um, <laughs> and he's Scottish. And I was in Edinburgh. And it was in the same graveyard as several famous people. And it was getting dark. And I'm trying to find this place in the dark. And it was raining. When I finally, I took these photographs. And it was the only thing that could illuminate the actual grave. So that it's very lurid looking, you know. Kind of, <laughs> and uh, and there were when I took the pictures, it was it was revealed in the dark that there were two or three bundles of flowers that some people had actually put there. So I wasn't alone in venerating the world's worst poet. I thought, well, that's nice. He's, you know, we make a fun of him, but he's got some friends out there. Beyond the destination, have you found that secular pilgrimage works similarly to sacred pilgrimage? Does it, does it function in kind of the same way, or is it a manifestly different thing? It's a funny thing, because now, now people are starting to do actual studies in this word, secular pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Um, in a country like, especially, it seems to be kind of an American thing. I, you know, there's the national parks is one of those things that people go to, you know, you can get one of those passports that shows that you've been to all the Mm -hmm. parks kind of thing. And, you know, in a country that does not have a lot of history as opposed to say, you know, Europe where we, when you're walking through all of that sort of stuff, it's very making one's own history seems to be a very much an American thing. Mm -hmm. I have this, Friend, my old friend Petra, who I've walked several places, would met her on the road to Santiago. Mm-hmm. She and I have been friends now since 1996. And when she, she's from Germany, and a country that's got nothing but history, you know. Mm-hmm. And when she goes hiking, she wants she wants to be in nature. She wants to be. She <laughs> wants. She's the one who holds you up because she's picking all the berries off the, you know, or <laughs> you know, poking the lizard, or you know, and. and I'm the guy who's come to Europe to kind of hike in history, to get, to get some history a little bit. I mean, yes, nature too, but... And that, that switcheroo seems to be part of, you know, I'm, when I go to a place, I'm, I'm often looking for its history as well as its nature. Mm-hmm. And that seems part of the whole secular pilgrimage, is looking for something real. I think when people travel in general, there's so many package tours, real travel has kind of gone kind of become impossible on certain levels, you know. Mm-hmm. There was a great book by um, Paul Fussell called Abroad, where he said that it was the great age of travel was between the two world wars. Then you had to kind of be very clever in how you were going to get to some place and, how, you know, where you were going to stay. And now, you know, there's ho- hotels everywhere. And there's something to a sort of personal secular pilgrimage that requires you to have a little bit 
of wiliness. You know, you have to kind of come up with your way of getting there. So there's a degree of personalization and independence that's required as though that in and of itself is what we're seeking as much as the the destination of the sec- of the secular pilgrimage. Yeah, exactly. That's you put it much better. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a lot to chew on, even just in the introduction that you composed for this book. And I want to look at a couple passages, because I think there's a lot to unpack here. One paragraph I really like is where you're talking about the paradoxes in pilgrimage and pilgrim narrative. And you write, the desire to go someplace else in order to be alive, but also to seek a kind of mortal oblivion there, the wish to get lost in order to be found the desire to make of the self both master and slave, the journey into wild places in order to become more civilized. So a lot of really interesting concepts there. Could you talk more about some of your thinking behind these paradoxes and what they tell us about pilgrimage? Yeah, I mean, they are. Those are very potent little uh, <laughs> phrases there, aren't they? Yeah. The, the, ma- the master and slave sound, when heard out loud, a, a little bit dr- melodramatic. But <laughs> thinking about, you know, just how much your body sort of suffers for that thing where you're sort of like, I'm going to do this mm-hmm. and and kind of overcoming it is it's so far hard to find, for instance, people who are really into doing that, you know, being, <laughs> like, let's go on our vacation, let's go out and be in pain. There's a, just one in a thousand people, I guess, and we have to stick together on this. The, what was it, some of the other ones you were just, I, I'm sorry, I'm, the, I wrote this and I can't <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned the desire to go someplace else in order to be alive, but also seek a kind of mortal oblivion. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's that whole the streetcar named Desire runs into the streetcar named Cemetery. Uh, that <laughs> uh, there is there is something about ending things at the at the end that is hard to do, and so it, it seems so funny to me that so many of these pilgrimages go to the place where people are dead. You know, that mm-hmm. the, the, the body is there, going to that place where the physical body it or at least is symbolically there, the phenotaph of it or something. Mm-hmm. And are we, are we kind of going to this place as a kind of final goal or something, or is there some rebirth that we ask that we're asking for? Certainly when I got to Santiago, I, I just couldn't stop. I just didn't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a, a strange sort of experience. Think night and day when, as you're going, that now there's only 10 more days. Now there are more <laughs> nine. And, and yep. when you get there, you just, you get up in the morning from whatever place you are in, in Santiago and you start pacing the room because you don't know what to do with yourself. Mm-hmm. And so this may be the solution this these kind of secular pilgrims kind of finding places where you want to go, you know, that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be morbid. But certainly having some kind of goal in mind for a trip. We were having a conference at uh, William and Mary this fall, uh, mm-hmm. which is the Center for Pilgrimage Studies. And we, it was a lot of conversation about, you know, the journey and the goal. And a lot of people were, you know, their, their wings were kind of flapping around because they, they felt that the, the goal was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I think it's equal parts because the goal is definitely... The arrival is maybe the, the, the more accurate thing that's most important. And I'm talking myself into a corner here. I just, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a bit, maybe I don't want to make, make any kind of 
decision on that, except mm-hmm. to say that it's a potent argument, isn't it? I mean, the, yeah. tra- the, the going and the arrival is, and that seems very important to this whole idea of, of pilgrimage. A third paradox you highlight in there is the journey into wild places in order to become more civilized. Yes, I. This is how I live. I mean, the best. <laughs> I, I'm afraid. I, I'm this person who will just rather go. It's it's a way of being alive to me. I, I wish I could do this at home. You know mm-hmm. that when I'm on the road, I notice everything more. I I'm less afraid. I'm less asleep. Mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, I just. You know, my journal is full of comments and thoughts, and it feels as if you know there's something that. It's getting away from routine. It's not. It's not knowing what's going to happen next. That can terrify, but it can also just make you feel alive. Along those lines, you you talk about the importance of fun. That mm. even in these journeys, <laughs> journeys towards death, towards graves, or whatever else, that fun is a central part of the experience. And you you write specifically that part of pilgrimage is a suspension of rules. So it almost sounds like the carnivalesque the inversion yeah. of traditional power structures and you know given that we we spend so much time i think um on pilgrimage or in pilgrim narratives talking about the nobility of suffering and the importance of the suffering aspect of pilgrimage for growth i'm interested in the idea of reestablishing the importance of fun and the centrality of it yeah i i'm so glad you brought that up because i i've been thinking about it too and i'm, I'm glad you made the connection to that carnival thing <laughs> where and and thinking about for instance the original carnival, which is the thing that happens before Lent, where it's like, let's have all the fun we can before the lights come on and there's no <laughs> meat for for 40 days, you know? Yeah. And that thing where the, if the rules are lifted, it's it's the stuff of Mozart operas and it's the stuff of, you know, the, all those night journeys, that thing where Orpheus goes into the underworld to get Eurydice back, you know? Mm-hmm. And when the lights come back on, everything is back to normal. But we have to have this moment, it, it's that moment of just discovering with the lights off or with the masks on or something when the, when you go into the unknown that really can change things and give us some journey the fun part of it is well it's fun i mean it's, <laughs> it can be an unknown but it's really it's fun to let the other rules go certainly that doesn't mean you have to misbehave when going on a pilgrimage but the idea of fun comes from in fact, a book by one of the authors in the book, the one who goes to the Marquis de Sade's castle, mm-hmm. he's got a book, John Beckman, it's called American Fun, and talks about major moments in American history as events that were fun. And he, what's interesting in that book is he never names them by name. You recognize them. If he, he talks extensively about the Boston Tea Party, mm-hmm. in which a bunch of people... They're just goof. I mean, they're just having a good time doing this thing. And uh, he never calls it the Boston Tea Party. He continues to describe it so that you don't see it the way we keep hearing about it. He talks about it in this new kind of fresh way. And every one of these events from history, whether it's the, the punk movement or African-Americans in the, in the late uh, 19th century doing performance stuff, it, it's all the fun can really be almost subversive in a way mm. that it can... And and having fun yourself, be subversive to your own mindset about things and maybe change your mind. I actually want to read a passage from uh, Beckman's piece about going to the castle, the Marquis de Sade's castle, because I think there are a lot of great passages in here. But this one, this one really stood out to me. He's He's climbing the castle walls and he says... 
my side splayed feet in Adidas rod lavers, poorly made do with the merest of outcroppings, as I lunged myself farther and higher from safety, and gradually near the, nearer the wind-whistling window that promised a glimpse of my interior world. For that, as I recall it, is what propelled me and possibly had been propelling me for decades, a positive look at the immoral blankness that had goaded my misbehavior, such as it was since childhood. So as he is striving to climb this castle wall, breaking the rules in the process, to see inside this one window to get this glimpse into the castle, he's also striving for understanding of of himself and what caused him to behave the way that he did as a child. I just thought that was a brilliant passage. Yes, it is. It's really great. And can I just say that the end of this is, he's a good father, teaching <laughs> at a major university with a loving wife now. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's, he's back, he's had his carnival, and now he's back, back in the saddle. So, and he lives happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great passage, isn't it? It really captures, I think, how the outer journey is so often simultaneously an inner journey that as we as we physically travel, we are deeply in pursuit of, of, of something, some greater truth within us that we feel like we can only get through that physical journey. Yes. Yeah. And it, that, it, that a physical journey is also can also be like a mental one and a spiritual one, that the physical is is part of the soul. I you know, I think yeah. it doesn't get mentioned often enough. Of course this is the Camino podcast. There's one story in here that focuses on the Camino de Santiago, but it's a really different kind of narrative as you alluded to before and I feel like that's in- increasingly unusual. So many words have been written about the Camino experience that a lot of the the narratives circle around some similar themes, but in this case it's it's different. So much of it is more about the the body, about aging. And what are your thoughts yeah. on on this piece? Well, and first of all, that's by that is by Sharman at Russell, yeah. who I just got an email from this morning. She is now in Central Africa. She's writing. She's written one book about hunger. She's doing a second one about hunger and po- poverty. Her methodology, and she's written several books that are kind of science. It's it's almost uh, like for, for lay people, you know, she'll she'll take on a subject like the rose or butterflies or cowboys, and she will just run with it as a person who doesn't know much about the subject, and just you see her discovery, you learn along with her. That's how she kind of writes, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that the subject of pilgrimage is she does the same thing with that and and her enthusiasm for it and her ability to kind of talk about these things you know she really has been thinking a lot about death lately because her mother passed away and her mother had wanted one of those really intense er, final exit uh, situations and she had to deal as a daughter with that request so I mean there is something there really is something about growing older and wanting to continue to have this body that is both fully uh, available to to doing strenuous things like walking, and so Charmin and Charmin is very much alive when she's <laughs> given that I'm sitting in an office here, and she's out she's out in Central Africa running around, so she's yeah. fine. She's <laughs> and she will be for a long time. One of the other pieces that stuck with me is is it Jivan Misra? Yes, the place between. 
Right. He was a student, one of the few times I've ever published one of my students. He's, he's actually a musician uh, and a composer. He just graduated about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is his taking his father's ashes to India and not knowing the place himself, not being from there. And I, I just, it's so lyrical. It's such a beautiful piece, I yeah. think. It was, you know, written beyond his age, kind of an old soul there. It's really striking, and, and sort of the connection between the secular and the sacred, I feel like, is made bare here by the focus on the most gr- grungy aspects of the secular, of, of human filth, and the relationship yeah. between human filth and the Ganges River, which is simultaneously this, this, the sacred destination at the end of this journey. And, and and so this relationship between the sacred and the secular, but I won't read the the final paragraph in the piece, but it's it's really just an incredibly striking and vivid conclusion. At, but it captures his process of recoiling and aversion to filth, and then sort of reconciling to it, and and then yeah. almost um, ultimately elevating the sacred out of the pollution or, or seeing the sacred within it, within this almost the, the, the nastiest aspects of our own physical, you know, corporal reality. Absolutely. And I, and I love that. I mean, I just think, I mean, just bringing it back to Santiago again, is that you walk into a church and the biggest, the biggest uh, thing you hope to see is that botifumero swinging yeah. through the church. And it was all about covering the smell of filth of all those pilgrims <laughs> coming in, you know, that there is, I mean, we, we have showers now, you know, they usually are only have cold water, as I recall, but <laughs> there, um, at least there is water to wash with, and that there would be this, again, that thing of the physical, the body t- being, taking your body to this place. Mm-hmm. And I did want to have that throughout the thing, and his was just a perfect example. By the way, that guy has the best haircut and the best clothing, <laughs> you know, he dresses better than me, so don't worry about him embracing Phil. Gotcha. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> you know, one of the things that it made me think about a lot is the ever-growing concerns about the filth lining the Camino, that increasingly you have people leaving, you know, used toilet paper behind. Um, there's the, the volume of people and yeah. the, the sort of filth lining the Camino and ever-growing aversion to that, which on one hand is totally understandable, of course, that that's not the thing that you want to see. But at the same time, that so many people are inclined to maybe skip over the industrial sections or avoid yeah. the the less scenic stretches. And yet those are a central aspect of the journey in their own way that we, we can't strip the uh, more fundamental aspects of our humanity um, from the experience without compromising something important. That is really true. I, you know, somebody somewhere, perhaps they already have, you know, somebody should do a book about Carrion de los Condes. <laughs> there's, just, there's something about that. When you, when you start talking about that most, that place on the Camino, for instance, where it's just, it's my least favorite part and it's the most important part, you know, mm. that, that kind of, that place in the Maceto where there's, and I guess, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of tart it up a little bit by having musical events there all the time, you know, doing something to kind of, keep people from skipping it. You're absolutely right. It is the most important part of this. This is life. Mm-hmm. What other stories might you highlight as, as sort of standing out for you in this anthology? Are there any other pieces that really stick in your memory? 
the two that I love the most, and this is a, something all the uh, the contributors are going to hear this and they're going to be <laughs> mad at me when I say this, but I do love the a piece by uh, Susan Fox Rogers who wrote In the Hut, which is about going to Antarctica to Murdo Station and going to see Scott's huts that were, and to write about Antarctica where there have not been humans and mm-hmm. that this place is, to put people in it is fascinating to me. There's so much about desire lines. The, the idea of desire lines is, you know, on campus, for instance, the gardeners will do such a careful job of planting bushes and making a little path so the students will walk on it. But then there are these places, it's just shortcuts where they, no matter what, how much yep. grass they plant there, people will walk and stomp through it. And it's like, give in, just give in and put, put a path there, you know. And, <laughs> and there, are, there are only desire lines in Antarctica. And they're, they go from the laboratory to these, they're not even a museum. They're just these old huts that Scott had there. And she kind of talks about that in a way that, you know, where, you know, what in humanizing Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that one I love. And there's a, there's a hilarious one in here by Jonathan Geltner, who wrote about taking a bike trip to the home of Wendell Berry and just every possible thing goes wrong it, and and you just have to laugh i mean the poor guy but <laughs> he lives through it and in the end wendell berry was saying who are you you know sort of when, he, when they finally get there um so those are a couple of great ones yeah hey brian it's been awesome to talk with you again if people want to find the book uh is it just available from all the typical spots or where where should they look it for is it? yeah amazon will get it you can get it directly from the publisher university of wisconsin press Bookstores are carrying it. It's getting some good reviews already. And the official pub date is November 22nd, but I think they'll start shipping any day now. Just in time for Black Friday, so people can... There you go. Perfect. <laughs> it makes a great gift for your favorite pilgrim. A stocking stuffer, yes. So. There it is. <laughs> Well, Brian and I discussed secular pilgrimage and sacred pilgrimage as contrasts. One of the things that I found myself considering after our discussion was the fact that I and I think many others see myself as a a secular pilgrim on a sacred pilgrimage when I'm walking the Camino de Santiago. I'm not a religious person, and so... When I'm walking the Camino de Santiago, I'm not doing it as a religious experience because it's not for me. I'm not a religious person. And so in that context, the meaning, the sacredness is external. It's not something that I have a direct personal connection to. For me, the greater meaning is in the shared importance of the Camino. That is to say that this is a tradition that has connected so many humans for so many years that I do find something sacred in that. But as a secular person on something resembling what Brian would call a secular pilgrimage, a visit to a site associated with a personal hero or someone who I have a, a deep connection to as a result of their their literary work, their 
political action, whatever their their activities may have been, I do have a personal association there. I do have a personal connection. And so the meaning of that experience, that process is much more internalized. It's the relationship that I have with that person that makes it meaningful. Whereas on the Camino, it's, I don't have any connection with St. James, but instead it's the relationships I form with other pilgrims that elevate the meaning. So for me as a secular person, the secular pilgrimage, my experience with it is perhaps in some ways more representative or closer to the experience of a religious person on sacred pilgrimage. But regardless, I think that what ultimately is is central to the pilgrim experience is this connection, this connectedness, and the the way that the physical experience of traveling to something can allow us to simultaneously forge a connection with the place and also with the people around us who are also partaking in that experience. It's that double connection to people and to place that makes it so powerful. That's what I'm kicking around as I think about uh, the conversation with Brian and these different kinds of pilgrimage that are both ever gaining in popularity these days. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. I always appreciate it a great deal. Thanks to Johnny Walker for carving out a little time between his flurry of guidebook authoring and his current pilgrimage ongoing at the moment um, from Cordoba in southern Spain. Thanks to Brian for getting on and talking about the new book, making this the first place that he talked about it. I really appreciate that. And get in touch if you're interested in being involved in the pilgrimage talk. Camino podcast at gmail.com. The Camino Forum, all episodes are posted there. Facebook.com slash Camino Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. Have a good one.